HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Katema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen iskaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a source of mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is very special, Mari Carter, who is a master bladesmith and the owner of the Carter Cutlery in Oregon. And Mari spent 18 years in Japan, and he was trained under 16th generation bladesmith. And now he's a 17th generation Yoshimoto bladesmith. Um, so, so today, Mari will share his, uh, with you his unique experience in Japan and his deep insight into the culture of Japanese bracelets and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Video Network, a web- website, as well as um, iTunes and Stitcher as a podcast. So please go to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe to Japan Needs and write a review. We appreciate uh, your feedback. Also, if you have ideas about the top and topics of the show, show guests, please let us know. And you can email us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. Now let's start a conversation with Mary Carter. All right. Welcome to Japan Eats. Hello, Akiko. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so pleased to have you. So, um, so first of all, um, where you, did you grow up? So I was born and raised in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. I lived there until I was 18, at which time I took a trip to Japan. And uh, my intention was to stay there for just six months. And instead, I ended up staying for 18 years. 
<laughs> you never know. <laughs> That's right. Right. So, uh, but uh, were you interested in Japanese culture when you grew up? Yeah, you know, I sure was. There was kind of a, an enigma, a, a mystique about the Orient. And uh, growing up in Eastern Canada in the early 70s, where there was no internet and very limited information, you know, outside of the uh, what you got on the TV, really. Uh, I, I was kind of fascinated because it was so unknown and kind of undiscovered, at least in my on my street it was. Mm, right. So the more you don't know, you, the more you want to discover. That's how it goes. That's right. Naimono <laughs> nedari. Yeah, that's a very uh, good way to... That's a Japanese phrase. Yeah. Okay, so naimono uh, naimono means that something you don't have. And nedari means you really desire, pray mm-hmm. for it. Right. Okay, and uh, so you just said you went to Japan at 18, so how did it happen? Well, when I was 15 years old, I started the study of karate, and uh, I progressed fairly rapidly through it because I was, you know, taking on double classes and very singularly focused on Mm. uh, improving my technique and my understanding of the martial art, and, you know, with that you know, I think some subconsciously comes a, a little bit of a, we'll say for lack of better words, an indoctrination into the kind of the Japanese culture, the Japanese spirit, certainly uh, outwardly the, the spirit of Bushido or mm. the warrior's spirit, kind of the honorable warrior spirit is, is emphasized and taught. So I, I did become interested in things of a Japanese nature outside of karate. And, and then probably what uh, really sealed the deal was I watched a lot of TV as as a child. I wasn't too much into sports outside of karate. And uh, James Clavell's Shogun, and most people would know it, Shogun, Mm. the the Shogun uh, TV series about uh, feudal Japan and about the the Portuguese and the European uh, sailors who found their way to Japan and, and how that story unveiled and the samurai and their kind of different, you know, their different ethics and different culture, uh, different, you know, kind of uh, martial discipline mm. was was very intriguing. And I think for me, that really sealed the deal in terms of me being kind of singularly focused and interested in Japan as, mm. as a culture and as a nation. Uh, it's interesting because I think, you know, Bladesmith is very, you know, disciplinary in a way. And uh, you were attracted to that aspect of Japanese culture, so there is a still already a seed to get into. <laughs> For sure, you know. Looking back, it's kind of funny. I did Japanese taiko drums mm-hmm. and karate, and I and I did. Uh, I was part of the the local uh, hunting association in Japan, and I also was involved with the Honda racing motorcycle circuit. Mm-hmm. So all of these things have kind of the same thing in common, you know, tremendous discipline mm. and lots of responsibility and kind of a, a martial focus. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it, it very much different from the restaurant industry where that's convivial and cheerful and and socializing and relaxing. Mm. In fact, it was a kind of a, always kind of an uptight, uh, disciplined environment. Right. I think uh, it's interesting because uh, the word discipline is kind of the essence of Japanese culture because it's all about precision and never-ending pursuit of that precision and perfection. And predictability. I think that's a, I think that's a big part of it too, is uh, 
you know, Japanese society has a lot of, you get a lot of people in a small nation. And uh, I think be, having been besieged by natural disasters, tsunami, volcanoes, typhoons, earthquakes, and everyone grows up with that. And mm-hmm. everyone is always aware that in a, in a heartbeat, everything they had or have can be lost to a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. It, it, I think it gives birth to this kind of, uh, this disciplined approach to life instead of a happy-go-lucky uh, or uh, kind of whimsical, lackadaisical way mm-hmm. of, of living life. And I think in that environment, predictability is also very important. And so I think there's a direct connection to all the natural disasters that, mm. that Japan suffers through and their national spirit and character. And I think being disciplined and working hard and, and being predictable and, and uh, being productive is a way of overcoming that. It's, an, it's, it's a strategy of life to overcome all of that adversity. Mm, wow, that's a fascinating uh, insight. I, I never knew, but that's so right. And uh, that's interesting that, um, you know, the, the tsunami, you know, that we hit Japan, the last tsunami was really crazy. But I think there is, a, in the last century, 20th century, there is a, the first big earthquake caused a lot of fire because house were, houses are wooden. So they built non-wood houses. And then um, all those shaking structure changed and improved. So actually the last tsunami event uh, in Tokyo there only a few people died from anything like no collapsing buildings so that's the result of that pursuit of precision and predict- predictability that's right. that's right <laughs> right so anyway so um, so what did you do when you uh, go to Japan at, at the age of 18 well for your listeners uh, to give them little understanding of my background. I was there to study karate and one of the fellow karateka, means uh, a colleague in my dojo, lent me his scooter to explore the uh, the town a little bit. It, it's actually a city of, I think, about 360,000 people, Kumamoto. And uh, as that's I was... Where exp- my dad is from. That's where, your, that's where your dad's from. Yeah, right. when you told me that earlier, we had, <laughs> we had a great conversation in Japanese earlier. It was... Very impressive was, Japanese. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, so... I was exploring Kumamoto and, uh, you know, looking for a, a, a bladesmith shop to find a teacher to teach me bladesmithing was arguably the last thing on my mind. Mm. But as I was driving by, towards the end of my little two-hour, you know, journey through, through town on this 50cc scooter, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this very impressive, kind of small, humble, but yet impressive in its, in its, in its own way building and there's this big display window with these uh, beautiful knives in it and large knives the, the the knives inside the display case obviously for impact and, and for shock value were were kujirabocho they mm. were they were knives designed for the whaling industry wow. uh, large blades obviously for for uh, taking apart you know, <laughs> whales 
you know, they would be in modern times. Of course, that's not very common. So they'd be used more for tuna and, and mm -hmm. larger fish, bluefin, bluefin tuna, and so on. But anyway, I did a U-turn, pulled pulled into the courtyard uh, of that uh, building, and opened the door and met. Uh, Sensei Yasuiki Sakimoto, who was to take me under his wing mm. uh, for pretty much the better part of the next 18 years. Mm. And that was a, a total, you know, uh, happenstance, uh, by accident, uh, by chance meeting. So you just went to his store and say hi? That's right. <laughs> I, and I, I literally said hi because I wasn't speaking Japanese. It was one of the first days I had after I had landed in Japan and I wasn't speaking fluently like I do now. Mm. So, but what was his reaction to have you, like suddenly, you know, a little young foreign boy said hi and he's interested obviously in his knives? Well, uh, you know, I, sh I should go back and ask him. I'm assuming I was probably the first non-Japanese person to step foot in that shop. Mm. So I'm sure there was an element of surprise, but you know you have to understand something about Mr. Sakimoto is he's he's very easygoing and he's very open-minded and he's he's very mellow and uh, you know in in the ways in which I am very disciplined and gravitate towards things of a martial nature, he 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 would be more comfortable in the restaurant industry. Mm. Not, not that there isn't discipline in the restaurant industry, but he's gregarious. He likes to relax. He likes to enjoy a good moment with a fellow companion, and and so this was a perfect combination between kind of like my hard, rough, mm. uh, uh, a bristly side and his very soft, accommodating, uh, uh, gentle side. Mm. And it was, it was a, I think it was good chemistry from the right. beginning. Well, the listeners, uh, you can watch uh, Mr. Sakimoto on the video at uh, karakalori.com. But he used to be not seriously into Bladesmith's business, right? Because he had to succeed, the family business. So Exactly. So he, he was the youngest of many children. And it was in a time and era... He, he he grew up watching his uncle and his father be bladesmiths. And in fact, to to paint a picture for your listeners, their property was uh, like a gate which entered into an open courtyard, which then was the shop, which you would open up sliding glass doors and walk into the shop where there were knives. Then you would open up another glass door and walk into the back workshop area where the forge and the grinding stones were and all the polishing machines and then you would go through another set of sliding glass doors and then there was a little garden and then behind that was the house and the only way that and behind the house was a wall you couldn't get out that way mm -hmm. the, the japanese say it's a unagi nidoko <laughs> unagi no nidoko yeah yeah like long long structure yeah it's a long strip of land mm -hmm like an eel they call mm. it like e eel style uh, uh land use yeah, a bit and of a eel <laughs> so 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 children born and raised in that house every day had to walk through both the workshop mm. and the the display room to get in and out of their own house to wow. go to school so so even if you weren't interested in bladesmithing you know you would wake up in the morning and go to school and you'd say goodbye to your uncle or your dad who were forging knives mm. you know you'd, you'd literally be dodging through sparks you know <laughs> as you were going to school because it was such a very tiny tiny uh, uh space so you know he, he when when it came to be somebody's turn when his father passed away mm. the 15th generation yoshimoto bladesmith 
when it was somebody's turn to do that. The other brothers and sisters didn't want having to do with it. Mm. This was this was the '60s when no one wanted a uh, what they call in Japanese sanke shigoto. It means the three Ks: kitanai, kitsui, uh, kiken. Meaning it's dirty work, it's dangerous work, and it's tiring work. Mm. And I often make a joke and say it's yonke shigoto because the fourth K is kuryo gayasui, meaning <laughs> not very well paying work either. Right. <laughs> so. You know, everyone in, at that era wanted the job at Mitsubishi or at Honda or Toyota or you know one of these giant companies where you would have lifelong employment, mm. and it was a, it was you know not hard labor. It was prestigious. You know, it was white collar white collar work. So to to when all of your friends in high school are going off to do all of these prestigious jobs, and and you would have to say, oh, I'm gonna. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back into bladesmithing like my father and uncle did before me, and I'm going to get my hands dirty every day, and probably, you know, next time I see you, I'll have burns all over my arms, and mm. et cetera, et cetera. It, it just wasn't a fashionable thing to do. It wasn't the choice that most youngsters were making in those days. So none of his brothers or sisters wanted anything to do with it. When he realized, like, he was the youngest, and no one of his brothers and sisters wanted to do it, he he felt a tremendous kind of sense of, of, uh, as he says in his video, you know, mutainai, how, what a waste of what a shame it would be mm. to let 15 generations of bladesmithing just die out. Mm. And so he kind of, in a way, begrudgingly, because he didn't want to get involved, you know, he didn't want to have to roll his sleeves up and get involved up to his eyebrows in the actual forging and making of knives and sharpening of knives. So he didn't really want to do it, but he did make a conscious choice. He said, you know, would I would I rather go and take a job at Mitsubishi or something, or would I rather see this family heritage mm. continue on? And he made a conscious choice to say, you know what, I I really want to I want to preserve the family legacy. So he did willingly become the 16th generation Yoshimoto bladesmith. Mm, right, and then probably he knew how hard to find the next generation as well. And then here you go, you have a very uh, ambitious. Um, known Japanese person knocking on the door. So maybe that's the reason he... But, you know, but you cannot just say hi and then can I work for you? Then it doesn't happen like that, right? No, we, we sat down and had tea that first time. And uh, I think I think we established a good rapport, even though uh, we, I was, we were relying more on his understanding of English than we were relying on my comprehension of Japanese at the time. But we established a good rapport. And then uh, we met a couple of times after that because I basically asked if I could just come and visit the shop sometime and like watch him sharpen knives or watch you know, him forge steel or whatnot. And he said, you know, he said, anytime, you can swing by anytime. It wasn't until I had been to uh, an intensive year at the University of British Columbia subsequently mm-hmm. after that experience. Uh, so I was in Japan for nine months the first trip. And I met him like the, for those first few days, saw him a couple of times during those nine months, but then w- went back to Canada for an intensive, basically four years of Japanese reading and writing study in one academic calendar year. <laughs> and, uh, and then that whole time I was like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to see Mr. Sakimoto again. And I think this time I can actually get in the forge and actually learn something mm. and I'll have the language ability to do it. And so it was when I went back that second stint in Japan, I immediately, probably within the first second or two days, kind of said, Tadaima, you know, mm. I'm back. And then and, and he was surprised because, you know, in, in Japan, especially in the early 80s, 
you had a lot of foreigners, mm. uh, you know, mm. coming from, you know, all sorts of European and Australia and Canadian, you know, North American countries, but almost always for a short-term visit right. and almost never to come back again. Mm. There's kind of a, an understanding in those days when if you met like an exchange student, you said hi, and then it was time for them to go mm. and you said goodbye you almost never expected to see them again. Right, just only transient. And just kind of transient. And so to, so for me to come back and now to be speaking very, <laughs> not quite fluent, but very good Japanese, uh, I think was, I, th I think it, it, it was the moment where he said, oh, this, this guy, this is different. Mm. And I can expect something different. And, uh, you know, I wonder what's in store next. Right, so that's when you started as a bladesmith. That's, that's when I, I got in the forge and forged my first blade. It was after I'd come back from that year at college. Mm. And, uh, and, 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 you know, honestly, once I forged my first blade, I mean, it was ugly as sin and, and wasn't good for anything. Forged up in a strange shape and I didn't know how to get it back in, in line again. And, but having hammered hot steel uh, and, and had this blazing hot 3,400 degrees Celsius fire at my fingertips and to feel the, the glow on my face and to feel the hot steel, you know, giving, giving off heat, uh, I was hooked. Mm, right. So, so you went back and say hi and tadaima in Japanese. So, so from that, you know, you just started to go to the place every day and worked full time as a yeah, well, apprentice. Yeah, uh, well, as many people who have been to Japan for a year or so uh, can relate, I had to teach English in order to support myself there. Mm. And so I kind of had my own little English conversation school. Uh, but the blessing there was that the, the work hours were pretty much late afternoon until 9 or 10 o'clock at night, mm. giving me every morning free, you know, morning till lunch, morning till 1 or 2, uh, for free and, and often more often than not, I would just go straight to the bladesmith shop and either start or continue working on a project. Of course, the first few knives I made took over, you know, upwards of 50 hours to complete. So wow. that's, that's, that's a lot of mornings going and just working on the same piece of metal and wood. Mm, right. And um, I don't know how many bladesmiths exist. I think it's the number is declining. But was there any specific philosophy by Mr. Sakimoto? I think the the first uh, and most important, yeah, yeah. Thinking about it, it clearly was the most important thing that Mister or, or Sensei Sakimoto taught me was how to get a truly sharp edge on a blade. Mm. Because if if you think about it, no matter how elaborate a knife is, everything in the knife is there just to support what I call the primary edge. Mm. The, the, the blade is there to support the cutting edge and the handle is there to be able to support the blade and to be able to transfer the power and control from the forearm and the hand mm. all the way down to the cutting edge of, of the blade. So mm. understanding, you know, what, what it takes and what makes for a, a, what we call a scary sharp edge kind of gives you the blueprint for the rest of the knife design. Mm. Wow, it sounds like uh, you're creating extension of your hand in a way, not just the tool. Right. Okay. And, uh, well, obviously you kind of survived that disciplinary training, but what do you think is most important as um, bladesmiths to 
you know, the personality or skills or talent? Yeah, we, we like to uh, joke and laugh in the industry saying that bladesmiths are born, they're not made. And I have students now currently who travel all over the world to come and take classes with us in Oregon. And uh, one of, one of the uh, very kind of concrete lessons that we leave them with after either a few days or a week with us is for them to make knives in batches of 10. Mm. So they'll, they'll, they'll forge 10 blades, they'll grind and heat treat 10 blades, and then straighten and grind and polish those blades into finished working blades. And then they'll spend, you know, many days constructing and shaping and finishing the handles for those knives. And the idea is that after they finish a batch of 10 knives, they go and make their next batch of 10 knives. Mm. And kind of one of two or three things is going to happen. They're either not going to want to forge the next batch of 10 knives. Mm -hmm. They'll have had enough. Like, okay, been there, done that. That's off my bucket list. Made 10 knives, give them to some friends. Now I know what it's all about. But, but really, you know, I'm, 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 now I, now I want to go race motor cars or I want to <laughs> do Paris paragliding or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, for the bucket list type of person. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's going to happen is, uh, conversely, is the person's just going to be just dying to go forge, start their next batch of 10 knives. Wow. And that's a good indicator. If, if, if after making and completing 10 knives, they're just dying to make 10 more knives, mm. then they probably have the essentials of being a bladesmith. After they forge their next batch of 10 knives is when it really becomes telling. Though This is where you start to separate the, mm. the, the chaff from the wheat, so to speak. If they forge and complete another batch of 10 knives, but there's no significant improvement mm. in the overall fit, finish, and symmetry and design of the knives, that's a warning sign. That means mm. that they, they have, the, they have the, uh, the, the gumption and the, the attitude, the right attitude to be a bladesmith but they may or may not have the right aptitude. Mm. So, we're, so, we're, so first test is, do they get in there and make batch after batch after batch after batch of knives and still love it? Mm. You know, that means sparks in the eyes, grinding their fingernails till they bleed, or not their fingernails, their fingertips till they bleed. <laughs> uh, you know, hand sanding wooden handles until their forearms ache and yet come back for the next batch. Mm. If though we don't see significant improvement from batch to batch to batch, then they, they, you know, I encourage them to keep, keep at it, mm. but it might be an eye opener that maybe that's not their life's calling mm. because, because finishing 10 knives and then making another 10 knives is, is such a Herculean task. I mean, it's, it's, it's akin to, I mean, this is a loose analogy, but if you finish 10 and then 20 knives and you see no improvement, it's kind of like going through a PhD program at college, but not really fully comprehending your material by right. the time you <laughs> finished, right. finished the research. Mm. I mean, maybe it wasn't really your cup of tea. Right. Yeah. Well, um, before we were talking about, you know, the bladesmith is not uh, muscle power, but the brain power. Yeah, maybe you can uh, share that part with uh, listeners. Well, that's right. That, well, well, when uh, Akiko, when you and I met just a few moments ago for the first time and we were chatting in Japanese, you, uh, you, you looked and said, oh, it must take so much uh, you know, muscle power to forge all those knives. 
And you said, do you think I could do it? I said, <laughs> I said yes, I think, I think you could do it. Because I'm always telling my apprentices that uh, the knife, you know, bladesmithing and being a knife maker is a thinking person's game. Uh, you always have to be two or, you always have to be able to anticipate two or three steps beyond where you're at when you're bladesmithing. It's it's not unlike being a race car driver, mm. where you know more than just the actual skills of driving and the hand-eye coordination and knowing how to break into a corner. You know, racing a car is much about anticipating the corner before you get to it and mm. anticipating the straightaway before you get to it and, and knowing what to do mentally before you just kind of re- start re- relying on reflexes. If you're, if you're a race car driver and you're driving on reflexes alone mm. and you don't have situational awareness, you're probably not the kind of race car driver who's going to be winning races. Right. So you mean that, you know, the, how the temperature is going to change as this timing and when you hit the, you know... Yeah, it's, 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 for example, it's when you, it's, it's before you even place the metal to be forged mm-hmm. in the fire, you're taking very careful notes of the dimensions of the steel, and you're already in your head rehearsing where the hammer blows are going to fall. Mm. And then once you put it in the steel, it's tending the fire in such a way that you're going to heat up the thickest part of the blade first and not the thinnest part and risk an overheat, which mm. ruins the grain of the steel. And once you get your fire and everything all figured out, it's then glancing over to the power hammer and saying, is my brush to clean the steel there? Or do I have the right tongs? You know, is the power hammer oiled? Is the switch on? Uh, you know, is, is the surface of my anvil cleaned mm. off? Do I have my handheld hammer there? It's, it's always trying to stay one step ahead because when you pull the steel out of the fire, it's cliche, but you have to strike while the iron's hot. <laughs> only, you only have so much heat mm. in a thin kitchen knife to work with, and you've got to make the most efficient use of that heat and of that time so that you can hammer in a, in, in, in a logical way that not only uh, results in getting closer to the final shape you want, but more importantly, and often overlooked, is you hammer the steel in a way to refine the grain of the steel. You're mm. actually improving this raw material that you start off with by very careful mental planning. Mm. And also, especially uh, Japanese knives are layered, not with just one material, like, like you know, two or three different materials, right? That's so right. you have to, depending on which what kind of knife, you have to really think. So full of attention, right? Okay, maybe I'll think about trying. <laughs> <laughs> I have to train my brain first. Um, so, you know, at the end of your training uh, for six years, so you were asked to become the 17th generation of uh, Yoshimoto Brisbane. But how did you prove that you're there, you're ready? Uh, it's, it's not like I keep a, a day-to-day journal, so it's difficult to look back and give you an accurate uh, chronological uh, history of how that unfolded. But here we are, you know, 30 years into that whole uh, adventure. And as I look back and think back, the way I remember it currently is that towards the end of that six years, maybe in the end of the fourth year and the, and the fifth year, there kind of was, I felt, as I remember it now, this understanding that that was the way things were going to go. You know, it's not like there was eight other students and we were all competing against each other and it was tense because nobody knew who was going to edge out the other person, pardon Mm. the pun. 
in this case, it was just me and Mr. Sakamoto and my burning passion to learn everything I could about uh, bladesmithing and, and his unfaltering support of that uh, and this beautiful chemistry between, you know, young, Caucasian, uh, in, in many ways, abrasive, prickly personality and, and his very accommodating and understanding uh, personality. And so uh, we were just, we, we became kind of a team in, a, in, a, in an odd way. Mm. And, uh, and I think that I knew that's where things were headed around the fifth year. What I did do, though, that is very specific, that's easier for listeners to comprehend, is I did tackle uh, a bladesmithing project many steps beyond, out of my comfort level, mm-hmm. uh, to kind of prove to myself and to him that I had a very kind of comprehensive understanding of the process. As I, I took this Hitachi white steel and blue steel and this Gokunan Tetsu uh, mild steel that's smelted specifically for cutlery, and I made a very, very complex uh, l- layered billet of what we commonly refer to as Damascus steel. And it was a, a soft core on the inside with a hard uh, kawahagane, which is a term borrowed from the uh, katana bladesmithing mm. uh, industry. And I, and I made this very uh, elaborate, jacketed, laminated blade uh, in the style of a, a, of a tanto or a short sword. Mm. So I used modern materials, I used traditional techniques, and I made what some would consider a traditional samurai sword, mm. short sword, uh, but using, using kind of cleaner, higher carbon steel. It wouldn't be recognized by a, a, an authentic katana kajia or Japanese sword smith as being authentic because I wasn't using uh, tamahagane, which is the bloom steel that most swordsmiths start off with. But certainly in terms of complexity and authenticity in the construction and the water quenching and so on that I did, it, it was very authentic. So I, I kind of, I kind of sh- proved that I had mm. swordsmithing skills which are many levels h- higher than required for just being an, mm. archi- uh, an agricultural bladesmith, right. which, is, which is what we were. We were no kaji, which is meaning agricultural bladesmith. Japan, you have katana kaji, which is kind of at the, considered to be the higher, mm-hmm. highest tip of the, of, of the echelon of bladesmithing. The samurai sword. Samurai sword, right. yeah. Then next down from that, well, then... You're either in Japan, you're either katana kaji, which is swordsmith, or you're, uh, uh, or you're no kajiya, which mm-hmm. is agricultural uh, bladesmiths. But within agricultural bladesmiths, which is all others, uh, if you're uh, the bladesmith who makes the temple tools mm-hmm. um, uh, for miyadaiku, okay. who, who are the carpenters who make the temples and the, and, and the, and the shrines, if you're making like plain blades and, and chisels just for those carpenters, you're considered, you know, high, high end mm. bladesmith. And then if you're, you know, making things like uh, marine tools or forestry tools, it's kind of considered one rank nice. below that. But within that ranking, you, you can, you can be the best in one area and be better than the lowest in the highest. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Right. So that's kind of how the Japanese view that superficially. 
And uh, so I dem- by demonstrating that I had a good understanding of swordsmithing mm-hmm. skills, I think there was a very, it was a very uh, concrete way mm-hmm. of, of demonstrating right. my ability. Mm. So in my opinion, I think you also advanced the tradition. I think that's what's required um, for any tradition because you get stuck. I keep doing the same thing over and over. You don't evolve and tradition is gonna die eventually. So I think it's a, you're such an asset for Japanese sword making uh, and blacksmith tradition. Mm. So yeah, I think there's a, a common understanding that uh, the apprentice becomes a journeyman in their trade, and the day that they innovate and can create something beyond even their own teacher's mm. skill set right. or imagination. Is kind of when they become uh, they become the master, and often then you know either carry on their tradition or they branch out on their own. Mm, right. Okay. So um, let's take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about marriage and knives and how he produces in Oregon. So please stay with us. The following program has been brought to you by Route Eleven Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese Podcasting by Promo Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is Murray Carter, who is a 17th generation master bladesmith and the owner of the Carter Cutlery in Oregon. So uh, let's talk about your business in Oregon. So, um, so you decided to open your place in Oregon, uh, not in Canada, not in Japan. So maybe you can quickly tell us what it is for. Oh, what's so special about Oregon? Yeah. Well, Oregon, well, first of all, it's on the West Coast. And I was pretty sure, having gone to college at University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, that even though I was born and raised on the East Coast, I knew I wanted to live on the West Coast. Mm. I like the, uh, I like the, the change of... Uh, topography and all the geological features. You got the ocean. You've got mountains. You've got glaciers. You've got rainforests. Very lush. And mm-hmm. so I like the West Coast. Uh, the decision was: Do I go back to Canada, or do I try to become a U.S. citizen? Because as a Canadian, I couldn't just mm-hmm. show up on U.S. soil and just mm-hmm. decide I was going to live here. It was going to involve a lengthy, you know, immigration, uh, uh, you know, naturalization, right. immigration process. So I kind of felt that, uh, you know, United States was center stage for the cutlery industry. I'd been traveling from Japan to uh, various trade shows all over the United States and, and, to, uh, and to France to a couple of different places annually as well. But it just, the, you know, the, the newest knives and, uh, you know, the greatest customer base and the greatest interest and the, the biggest and most Im- impressive kind of trend-setting factories and companies were all here in the United States. Mm. So, but, but you didn't decide to stay in Japan, right? So what's the reason for that? Well, I'd been, to, I'd been in Japan for 18 years, and I felt there was kind of four concrete reasons at the time 
that I decided to move from Japan to the United States, or at least to North America. Mm. The biggest reason was I had four children who were all born and mm. raised in Japan, and I wanted them to have an international education. I wanted them to be exposed to the kind of Judeo-Christian uh, 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 culture and education to round out and complement their Japanese language and their Japanese education. Mm. And uh, then secondly, I was pretty sure that I wanted uh, to further my education. And at the time, I was trying to do some uh, adult studies at university. And although I'd been to university in Canada, I didn't graduate with a degree. I'd just taken a handful of different uh, classes that I thought I could benefit from. So I didn't actually have a degree in hand. And so uh, that's not a possibility in Japan to go mm. to Japan Right. to go to college as, as an adult for continuing education. And thirdly, uh, I felt like uh, even though I was practicing traditional Japanese bladesmithing mm. and I had inquired at the local town office about you know what it took to be recognized as a traditional artisan or a traditional craftsman, as, as, as they say in Japanese, like a dental kogehin or dental kogeka. Mm. And uh, it was pretty much as a non-native Japanese person. It, it looked like the mm. hurdles to get that recognition were pretty much insurmountable. That's very frustrating. <laughs> you know, I love Japan and I've had a relationship with Japan for 30 years and my children are all born there and that's their first language and I speak the language fluently and I love going back and I feel like I've got family there. But there are just a few, you know, traditional things that, are tough to stomach, such as uh, if you're not a native-born Japanese person, you cannot be part of their volunteer fire department. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a stipulation that's been there uh, forever. And even in this year, 2017, mm. there's still kind of that insular nation, you know, Shimaguni Konjo. Right. There's a little little bit of, uh, you know, nationalism, mm. subliminal, and unless you live there for a long time, you won't feel it. But uh, right. Well, that's the stubbornness that preserves the, you know, the tradition really well, but uh, the other side of the coin is that's very inflexible. Yeah. And yeah. close-minded well, in a way, so... Well, like you said, it, it, you, you almost can't have one with the other. You can't have you know, the martial discipline of taiko drums and bladesmithing and karate, if you let it just become diluted by the international mindset. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what makes the things, I mean, you know, whether it's sumo to sushi to kimonos, you know, it, what, what makes that so interesting, or ikebana, or for example, mm -hmm. what makes it so fascinating for the rest of the world is because it is uniquely Japanese, and what keeps it uniquely Japanese is by keeping it purely Japanese. Mm. So if, you, if you're just willing, if a culture is willing to dilute any of its customs and traditions and language and culture and rules, you no longer have that right. unique perspective. So you really can't have one without the mm. other. But, uh, you know, I think by having you outside of Japan uh, gives, you know, the global audience to learn more about bladesmith. A traditional Japanese bracelet and also I think that um, you're like you did uh, you mixed the sword technique and bracelet te technique together I think your creation becomes even more interesting maybe 
So I think overall, that's the benefit to the business industry. It's worked out. It's worked out amazingly well. And so I did move to North America thinking that I might get more public recognition for my work here on center stage than in Japan. And, and, And just like you're saying, interestingly, just the reverse happened is by moving out of Japan and promoting Japanese bladesmithing here in North America, where I have literally an international audience mm-hmm. and students who come from all over the world to to study with with us at Carter Cutlery for anywhere between a day and fifteen day intensive classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we've 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 gained a lot of traction. One one very interesting uh, result is uh, we started doing custom-made handles for some of our traditional Japanese-shaped kitchen knives. Of course, we specialize in really thin, high-performance, really, really sharp, scary sharp uh, cutting kitchen knives. Uh, But the traditional handles in Japan, typically made of honoki, Mm. uh, magnolia wood, uh, with like a water buffalo horn ferrule. So it's kind of like a a blondish tan wooden handle with a a black... uh, bolster or ferrule and it just between the blade and the handle that is kind of so plain jane that we started doing custom handles and we started taking like ironwood and and uh and osage orange and cocobolo and and stabilized maple wood and we started making these really interesting beautiful kind of organically feeling octagonal handles for our japanese mm. style kitchen knives and then even sometimes incorporating uh, synthetic materials like G10 and micarta mm. and uh, uh, different types of corian and so on. We started making custom handles for our Japanese knives, mm. and it caught on so well that now Japanese knife makers are getting custom handles made for their mm. knives. It's almost if you want to export a Japanese knife to North America now, it's got to have one of these custom handles on. Oh, so, wow. so I've I've influenced all of the Japanese bladesmithing industry mm. and the only way that would have ever happened is what it was by stepping out of it right yeah wow. do you know how many uh, bladesmiths are left in japan i heard it's really declining numbers declining yeah again for that uh that uh sanke or 3k reason you know it is tar- tough it's hard mm. it's uh usually not well compensated and dangerous and uh it's hard to attract young folks to to bladesmithing in Japan, but uh, I was very fortunate that uh, the uh, Nippon Hoso Kyoku, the NHK, did a couple of documentaries uh, on, on me. Two biggest TV stations in Japan. Yeah, mm. and then TBS and Tokoro George did a program about me doing bladesmithing. Mm. And now we see a resurgence of young people in Japan who are approaching older bladesmiths and saying, please teach me your craft. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. So the Japanese business uh, industry really got lucky to have you. You know, I don't like to toot my own horn, but it's just very, very fortunate it turned out that way. Right. This little scooter, 50cc scooter <laughs> trip to in Kumamoto changed that's, the whole industry. That's, maybe. that's right. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, you know, how are you planning to train 18th generation of uh, Yoshimoto? Because... Talking about all those things, succession and planning, and you're in Oregon. So, what's your prospect? Well, it, first of all, you know it's a it's a it's a really um, awesome and sobering responsibility to know that I represent 
430 years of continued mm. Japanese traditional bladesmithing heritage, and I'm 17th generation, which implies there should be, if possible, an 18th generation bladesmith. So, you know, day to day, as I'm as I'm making knives, forging knives, conducting my business, traveling to New York for podcasts, for example, whatever it is, uh, this I, I'm, it's always uppermost in my mind that I need to uh, pave the way for the 18th generation mm. uh, person, and so. I did set up a, a program in Oregon where our shop is. It's an apprenticeship program, which basically allows pretty much anybody who thinks they might be interested in bladesmithing to, to go through a three-month uh, apprentice program. Mm. And I call it the Navy SEALs training of the bladesmithing world because it's, it's very strict and very unforgiving. And, and uh, people who think they want to be a bladesmith get, who, who don't have the right aptitude or attitude get weeded out very quickly. Mm. Uh, but uh, I have a program where uh, people can, can can try their hand at bladesmithing, and currently we have four. Well, we have three bladesmiths who work full time at Carter Cutlery, who mm. are graduates of the program, so they are journeyman smiths. One yeah. of the gentlemen is our senior journeyman smith, and currently we have a fourth in training. Mm. And uh, you know, one day I hope that hundreds of people. But you know, one day in the future, I hope that hundreds of people will have gone through that training. Some will stay working for Carter Cutlery. Some will go on to open up their own bladesmith shops uh, and continue in the tradition. But the idea is to, uh, to, to find the 18th generation bladesmith through that program, that they mm. will come into it and they will just immediately identify themselves by their attitude and their aptitude mm. as being the perfect next Murray Carter to come along to take the whole... Yoshimoto bladesmithing family history to the next level. Right, amazing. So good luck. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so uh, well, thank you for joining us today, Murray. Oh, it's it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Akiko. And uh, please come back, and then we have so much more to talk about. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> right. So, listeners, if you'd like to know more about the Murray's knives and of, or want to train as a potential apprentice, uh, please go to uh, karakadri dot com. That's one word, katakadriri.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at japaneeds.heritageradionetwork.org or kikukatema.com. And Japan Eats is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes and Stitcher as, pod- as a podcast. And uh, please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. Thank you so much. And today's show was... Uh, but engineer is a bit of harsh and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.